Hello, everyone, and welcome to Songversations, the long waits podcast where we interview songwriters about their methods and approaches to writing songs. I'm Bjorkvin, and I play guitar and sing in the long wait. You can visit us at thelongwait.com, our very active social media profiles on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels that are all under the username Long Wait Music. You can support this podcast and our music in multiple ways, either by becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash thelongwait, using our Amazon affiliate link through thelongwait.com slash Amazon, or sending us a tip through our virtual tip jar at thelongwait.com slash tips. Thank you very much for your support, and now let's get into this week's interview. All right, we are here with Kathleen Williamson. She uh, brought along some CDs, and it's funny to talk about that because we were emailing back and forth, and I was asking if you had any digital copies because you are on Spotify, and because they make computers now that don't have CD drives. So I just have a portable CD drive whenever I need to listen to CDs. These are really cool, and when I was looking at the Sacred Spud record, we'll be talking about that a little bit later, the like credits is always one of the more fun things to look at. The credits, the liner notes, the design, and that's sort of lost. It's lost. Yeah. Right. So thank you so much for coming on. We had some scheduling difficulties, but we made it. Well, thank you, Bjorkvin. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. So let's start about, maybe you want to just give us a quick overview, a quick bio on uh, yourself as a songwriter and musician. I'm a kind of an unambitious veteran Okay. Songwriter and musician. I started out in the 60s in Brooklyn with bands. We had a rock, a lot of rock bands, Who cover bands. That was my one of my favorite rock cover bands that I was involved with. And then uh, a lot of Janis Joplin, very popular stuff. Not as much. I didn't play as much Beatles, although as a solo, I played more Beatles. But with my rock bands, I played more Joplin and a lot of Who. I was a total Who freak. <laughs> Stones, and you know, covers. And then I started writing songs at a pretty young age. And most of them were, you know, anti-establishment All right. songs, you know, because I, when I really started coming into my sentient nature in music, I was quite young. The Beatles was, really woke me up at the Ed Sullivan. I was there. I was present and sentient. Oh, wow, really? For the Ed Sullivan. At the that, show. Yeah, not, not at there, oh, okay. but I was in New York City. I was in front of an old black and white TV oh, set, wow. banging it, trying to make it work. <laughs> I was about 11 years old, and all of a sudden, like, the Beatles just changed the world. I went downtown the next day. I was, I was like I said, very young. But in those days, it was very safe for children, even in New York City, and I used to ride the subway. I was 11 years old. I had $25 saved up and I went down to a hawk shop in downtown Brooklyn and I bought my first guitar. And I really wanted to be a drummer, but I couldn't have drums because I was living in tenements in New York City. Seems to be a common problem. Exactly. That's probably why there's less drummers, just because of the loudness factor. <laughs> Especially in apartment buildings. It's just not going to happen. And um, so I've, I've been playing rhythm guitar all these years. I can sort of flub out a few slow hand leads and improvs from time to time. I'm getting a little better with that over the years, a little chord melody here and there. But my real thing is I really play the drums on the guitar. Oh, all right, cool. And that's fun. It's just fun. And so because of that, I've been able to do a lot of solo work over the years too because I can really fill out a sound. You know, I can really do the whole power chord thing or... You know, all that stuff, and then and just do a lot of good rhythm stuff. But I started writing anti-establishment songs at a pretty young age, and 
I love writing songs. I mean, right from when I started learning songs, I just started writing songs. It just sort of came to me, you know. I can't say I had a great education at that time in terms of learning, like, music education or literature. You know, I was in New York City public school systems. I probably could have benefited more, but I was such a truant and a juvenile delinquent that I... (laughs) I really wasn't paying a whole lot of attention, <laughs> and uh, I was just sort of finding my own way and gravitating, yeah. you know, reading so, The Village Voice and reading other things, you know. Yeah. But anyway, and then one thing led to another, and I moved to Arizona when I was 20. I left New York City. It was a bad time in New York in the 70s, yeah. and it was right in that cusp of when, like, the classic psychedelic rock, Hendrix, Cream, you know, all that stuff was sort of kind of going out, and then what was coming in was this other New York thing, Bowie, the Ramones, Patty Smith was just, I was right in that cusp when I left New York. So, so it was slowly getting more, more and more punk. Yeah, yeah. And CBGB's was, my younger sisters were turning me on to the, the new rock that was coming in in New York at that time. But I was already like off in another world. And I just, I left New York when I was at 20 then and I moved out to Arizona and I moved to this little town. I just escaped from the New York City vibe. And I moved to this little town of about 500, at the time it was about 250 people. It was about 500 there now. It's called Jerome, Arizona. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been there. This was 1974. That's actually where uh, Maynard James Keenan of Tool. Uh, he came years, yeah, years no, later. Of he came he's, years he's, later, yeah. yeah but and, that's why I went there. That's oh, is that why, why you went there. up yeah. there? <laughs> I went to his winery. Well, he's changed the whole... The, Jerome used to be a ghost town. Now it's a famous winery because of him. When I went there, there were about 250 freaks living up there, and I loved it. Because, I mean, right before I went there, I was going to Kinks concerts at Carnegie Hall. I was going to Who concerts in Forest Hill Stadium. I mean, I was just doing this big New York thing, right? And I went to Jerome, and I just fell in love with, like, just going down the dirt road to a potluck party. And all these people in town would just show up with guitars and mandolins, and we would just start just jamming for hours, you know. (laughs) <laughs> have a few tokes and eat some good potluck food and just play this great music and everybody's harmonizing. And then over the years, you get to know each other's songs and so forth. And it was just true folk music. It was great. Yeah. And so I went there in 74. And then a year later, I met one of my great mentors, Katie Lee, who's still alive today. And she was a true folk musician. I knocked on her door March 17th. 1975, I had seen her albums. You know, she had some of her own albums. She was the first indie artist, really. She walked away from the major labels around in the 50s and went over to Folkways and then did folk songs of the Colorado River. And then she she started her own label, Katie Did Records. And so when I first met her, she had this great album out called Love's Little Sisters. I knocked on her door and she took me in and under her wing and she really taught me what folk music is. I mean, I thought Joni Mitchell, I started singing You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio as an example of a folk song, you know what I mean? And she just like laughed and she turned me on to Josh White. You know, I mean, these really great and then contemporary songwriters like um, Tom Russell. That really got me going in terms of my songwriting too, like writing more and more folk music and I traveled to Ireland later that year where my mother is from and I got started getting into writing more and more Irish music and learning Irish folk songs and everything, you know, it's just always been a process. I mean, that's, and I'm just leaving this story off in the 70s right now in response to your question, but (laughs) I became more professional as a folk singer and I started, I had to learn country western music if I was going to do any professional singing in the late 70s in Arizona. So I won't bore you with the very funny stories of those first (laughs) folk music, country music gigs because I hated country music growing up in New York. I was like into James Brown and funk and, you know, all this more moving stuff. And anyway, but I did learn. And now I have a kind of a more of an appreciation of Americana. And, you know, you can hear that, well, that countryside of Americana. You can hear it in Sacred Spud. But it took all those years of, like, really being introduced to great artists and listening to great songwriters to really arrive there. Because I had a lot of prejudice about it in the beginning. I thought it was stupid, really, you know, twangy. 
But then friends in Jerome turned me on to Jimmy Rogers, and I heard them singing the harmony. Like So it became very contemporary and very alive for me, you know? Yeah. It was beautiful. And Hank Williams, and I started to hear these beautiful songs, and it influenced me. You know, that influence grew on me, too. So, you know, it's been a lot of different influences. But I'll also mention that in the late 70s, I met a jazz guitarist by the name of Joe Wolverton. Uh-huh. He became my next great mentor. And so I went with, I stayed with folk, but I also added jazz to that element and uh, to that to my my full being. And and Joe had taught Les Paul how to play guitar. So I met Les Paul years later a couple of times as a result of that relationship. Anyway, so I started learning really great rhythm guitar, you know, comping and, and it, you know, the orchestral chords, the moving orchestral chords and passing chords and a lot of stuff from Joe. So I became his rhythm guitar player so he could fly on the leads then, you know, so I would just hold the bottom down for him. And we had, we called ourselves the one and only two. And I was his last student. It was a fabulous relationship. He's passed away since. But Katie Lee is still alive. She's 95. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just saw her a couple of weeks ago. And she's still, she is so rambunctious and so <laughs> fabulous. And she's writing books and she's bicycling up and down the mountain. And she's just an amazing, amazing woman. So then I came to Tucson. I did a lot of professional music. I made my living in Flagstaff and Sedona, playing a lot, a lot of gigs for years, you know, and with a lot of variety, everything from rock and roll to folk music to jazz, you know, really originals, covers, very diverse, and um, cut a couple of cassettes in the early 80s up in, in um, Flagstaff area, and then uh, went on a long weekend in Guam in 1983 and played over Pacific area and Japan and around over there for a while, and did a cassette over there called The Irish Queen Live in Tokyo and distributed that when I came back. But that was, again, that was at Mudshark, Phil Gall at Mudshark Studios and Flagstaff did the mix down and, and things on that. And um, that was a really fun cassette back in the cassette days. Yeah, exactly. And then I just started, I came to Tucson in, around 1985. I needed to get sober. In 1986, I was accepted into law school in Tucson. I had to do something. Okay, so you went to James E. Rogers? I went to James E. Rogers Law <laughs> okay. School. Yeah, I started there in 86 and finished in 88. Got out really as fast as I could. And then I became a practicing lawyer. And I just really slowed down on the professional. I became more of an amateurational okay. musician. But Amateurational. Yeah, an amateurational. I like that term. Yeah, That's I mean, amateur cool is for term. the love of it, but I still had all the professional years behind yeah. me, and, and I had a sense of how to. Yeah, you paid you know, your dues, paid but the now dues you're just and, doing it out of, out yeah, of love. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and then working with other musicians. And then Lisa Ote and I teamed up, and we did a lot of duo work for years. Okay. And when I was in the Desert Divas for a while with her, and that was a lot of covers. But it was fun, and we toured around a lot as blues musicians. Yeah. We won the Arizona State Champions Blues as a duo one year and went to oh, Memphis cool. on that thing. And we played in Europe a lot as blues musicians. You know, it's like I want to do an album called The Hegemony of the Blues because, you know, especially in Europe, oh, Japan too. Oh my God. I mean, well, I think Europe more than anywhere. If you play the blues, you would just have a ticket. Yeah. You just have a ticket. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's amazing. I and mean, it doesn't matter what language everybody's speaking or anything. And it's almost, to me, it's almost too much. You know, Such a hardcore fan base. It's such a hardcore fan base. You go to France, if you do the blues, you're just in. You're just in. Yeah, even in Iceland, there's the blues festival. And oh, it's, it's just, there are the bluesers for life, guys, that just do that. Yeah, and you can make a living. You can go to Europe and make a living just doing right. that. You could tour forever just doing the blues there, you know. I can't do that much blues, you know. It's too much <laughs> of a mantra for me. Some of these, we played the Cognac Blues Festival a couple of times times and the Sir de Seine in France and those blues festivals. I remember one time sitting in the big performer's tent eating and uh, I forget which 
kind of famous New York blues player was sitting next to us, but this was one of his key songs, and I just didn't realize it was saying. And I said to Lisa, I said, if I hear "Come On" in my kitchen one more time, I'm going to throw up. I mean, it was like days and days of three and four chord songs, you know. So because I still had, the, and then I would get in trouble with these blues musicians because I was always thrown in the jazz. I'd throw in like yeah, sixths yeah, and, yeah. you know, weird thirteenths and just do these weird kind of chords. I'd throw the stuff in there and boy, I tell you, I used to get in a lot of trouble. And it's not always just that there's the same chords. It's also usually the same melody too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, so anyway, so that's kind of another facet of a lot not of Not to insult happened. any blues musicians right, out right. there. But it's been very diverse, you know, and I'm really happy about that. And then in the middle 2000s, my dad died and that was a big loss for me in 2000. He died in 2002. And in 2003, I said, you know what, life is too short. I have all this music in me. I have all these songs in me. And so I went into Jim Brady's studio and did Love is Best of All. I was thinking a lot of my dad at that time. And it wasn't just like getting these songs out before I die. It was getting these songs out while I still had oxygen. You know what I mean? Like you can just like be alive for a long time and not even be able to, to do it, you know? So so we went in and did Love is Best of All at Jim Brady's studio. And that won the t- quite a few Tammies, actually. Best CD, best folk music, best songwriter. That was really a good year for me. And, yeah. and then in 2005, I was going through this breakup, like big breakup, 17-year relationship. And a lot of the songs on Sacred Spud came out of that. It was very transformative formative experience to go through that and I was just like my mind was just being pummeled with songs right. you know it was just like I'd be doing well you know I know one of your questions on your list is like what's the songwriting process and for me I'm going to answer that in advance yeah, if you don't absolutely. mind I'm just going to yeah, jump no, go the gun it. here yeah. you know I'm, I'm real yeah. easy to interview but for me I also do visual arts and when I was a child I was majoring in visual arts in, okay. in, in New York City and I always found that The best way for me to be creative was to not sit down and say, I'm going to write a song now or I'm going to do a picture now. It was like to go in the garden and do some gardening or start painting the ceiling or, you know, just anything unrelated at all. And then and it's through those mundane, repetitive tasks, all of a sudden my mind is wandering and I have a real home entertainment system going on between my two ears (laughs) and songs will just start coming. I stopped doing the tonal bath, what I call the tonal bath of having constantly background music on all the time. I stopped that in the early 80s and I let my own interior stuff operate. You know, as a result, I'm not as, like, literate about the latest music or a lot of things, you know, but my own stuff turns on then. And, you know, I'm driving a car and, you know, Big Deal Small Talk, which is on that first album, just came out of, like, while I was driving from Jerome to Phoenix in 1980. So it's Harai's Could Shake the Demon, that song Shake the Demon on Sacred Spud. I was writing a legal brief and this (laughs) line came to me. Her eyes could shake the demon out of any other man. And I had to just stop everything and go, that is a really great hook. Mm -hmm. That hook tells the whole story. All I need to do is put the dressing around that hook. Now. <laughs> yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, then fill in the rest of the blank. Exactly. And then the music, it all comes together. The music comes, but but for me, it's like when the muse does come to visit, I don't stop and take a cigarette break beforehand or go to the refrigerator beforehand or do any of the stuff that is afraid of the muse, that's sort of avoiding the muse or postponing it. You cannot postpone that. Yeah. It's gone. Right. It goes. So when that happens now, if it's at all possible, I will stop everything and pay attention to that experience and see what's being delivered to me right now. How can I cooperate with that creative energy? You know, how can I participate with that right now? Because it's me and it, whatever that is. Yeah. And that's when the best stuff happens. You know, I'll be working outside doing just sweeping or 
something. You know, it's beautiful work. Yeah. You know, it's just beautiful work. And the mind is doing its thing all the time. The mind that, well, not, it's, it's above mind. It's really trans mind, right. that creative thing, you know? Yeah, I tend to, uh, I keep lists of song titles and lines and that sort of stuff because I'll be walking around or doing something or I'll having a conversation and somebody says something clever. Right. I was like, oh, that's a good line for a song. Right. And right. then I just like steal it from them. Obviously, right. take out my phone and write it down. Absolutely, yeah. That's just <laughs> happening all day long. But you don't, you can't stop and write a song right there on the spot. Right. But you'll catch that those little things yeah. or a melody when you're walking. You're taking a walk and a melody comes. And what I found you saying like, what devices? It's one of your last questions. Yeah. Is like, what devices are helpful to you? Yeah. Well. Before the recorders came out in the phones, I started carrying around a digital, a very small little digital recorder. Yep. And that was invaluable because I would just hum a melody or I'd just a line or whatever inspiration came to me or something like that. I would just stick it in there. And I have, unfortunately, a lot of those haven't been mined, but... Well, I guess maybe fortunately they haven't been mine. There's two ways of looking at it. But they're in the computer, like yeah. shuffling from one operating system to the next, hopefully. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They're still going to exist when we upgrade to the next operating system. You know how that happens? Sometimes everything's gone 10 operating systems later. Right. But I think that they're all still in there in some kind of MP3 format or wave formats, you know. Yeah. They're floating around. Like, like they used to be scribbles on napkins. That's the new digital version of that kind of stuff. It's so convenient to have just the phone around because, you know, I remember I was taking out the trash here after some party. We had a party a few weekends ago and uh, I was taking out the trash and I was, you know, thinking about the party or something about pe like people like kind of sometimes they're like kind of acting like cooler than they are, but they're sort of hiding something. And then I was like, started harming a line and then some, you know, sort of a chorus appeared very like organically and loose, but definitely an idea. And I like picked up my phone and, you know, if from an outsider looking in, it's just like some crazy person with a trash bag, like humming into a phone. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, you know, that's, it's invaluable to have that, to be able to jot down your ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, you know, everybody's used to people talking into phones now and not even holding them up to reason right, anymore. Right. So you don't look so crazy anymore. But <laughs> a lot of it, it's sort of like the uh, technological version of the crazy people I used to see walking down the street who were who were talking to themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But they, yeah. it's the same, really the same thing when you think of it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, so you're saying that you know most of the stuff comes to you in a way but is there and i'm assuming those are the initial ideas when it comes time to like really flesh out the song and the production do you have any specific methods that you adhere to more often than not it varies sometimes a song will just come out i mean it just it'll, i'll sit once that once the idea happens i may have the guitar in my hand already yeah or i may be doing something else usually if an idea comes it'll be if i have my guitar and I'm practicing because I'll, I'll pick up a guitar. I practice scales, I practice you know chord movements and little exercises and things like that. And I try to stay on top of that, to stay limber. And but my mind is a, a wandering mind, and it, it's reflected in my practice of scales because I don't stay. That's why I need to meditate, you know, because yeah. I have to keep coming back to the breath. And it's the right. same thing. Like yeah. I have to keep coming back to the scales. But fortunately, my mind does wander. And next thing, I'm wandering off someplace musically and exploring and then something will click something will happen it may be the kind of thing that you just you can't take it any further at that moment so you save it yeah. you know on your ipad or on your phone or whatever or if you have the time i can just keep going with it for a while and then i'll maybe let it roll around for a while and i'll see i'll think well what kind of words go with that what's the feeling of that and things will start if i just relax and let everything sort of flow 
stuff will start coming. And if I don't have, if I turn that internal editor off, that's when it's great. When that editor comes in, the ego comes in, the yeah. zen it goes right out the door. Yeah. Yeah. The creative juices and flow, the muse flies, yeah, yeah. you know. And so it's a real magical liminal place yeah. where those things happen. So if I can take the time and just just really open up and be fearless with it, you know, just doesn't matter. There's not like nobody's watching. That's the great thing about woodshedding or living alone or you know having a private space. Yeah. Other times, you know, the words will come. Yeah. And then I have to stop and see like what goes with that. Sometimes like a song like Hour to Maggie on the first CD there, it's kind of an Irish melody. Okay. I was bicycling in Flagstaff at about 27 degrees below zero one morning <laughs> in the snow. We're going to class. And the melody, no, the line came to me. It's only an hour to Maggie. And the melody sort of came shortly almost with it. It's hard to almost tell which one came first, but... Yeah. Then I I just meditated and kept working on that and returning to that over a period of about three days, kept coming back to it and then I got a verse out and then I and I knew that that's where I wanted the chords that's where I wanted the melody, it was it's a very ethereal kind of a song and then I just kept staying with it and being more serious like more of a serious poet about it like deleting lines that were wasted words waste empty calories really mm-hmm. you know and, uh, you know at first I'll let it flow 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 then the editor does have to come in at some point and uh, clean it up. But the trick is to, you know, schedule them for tomorrow. Exactly. You can schedule the editor. You can't schedule the muse. (laughs) So you've got to really just open up and let that just flow. You know, there's no mistakes when you're in coordination with the muse. There's no such thing. And then later the editor comes in and does the, puts the wrapping on and the editing and gets rid of like the surplus stuff and, you know, tightens, tightens things up and everything, you know. So when you have, say you have like a line that might be a hook or a title or whatnot. And then you say sometimes the melody comes afterwards. Do you remember a specific time when you had like a hard time coming up with a melody that two lines that you really, really wanted to put into a song? No. Okay. No, I think the melody comes to me more easily than the words sometimes. Oh, yeah? Yeah, sometimes it's hard. Like the, I'll get a melody and then I'll go like, well, what words go with that? And that's a little more difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I think it's in that direction for me. Okay, so you just you start humming or singing or... Yeah. And then do you pick up a guitar and then try to find the right chords and the key and... Yeah, once what... I pick up the guitar, I have some words and some melody. And once I have the guitar in my hands, then everything starts really just coming together. Right. It really, it's just magical. It just starts flowing. When it's flowing, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's the guitar or the melody or the this or that. It all starts coming together. All these pieces start fit, interlocking and... It's a great experience. Yeah. I mean, I feel sorry for people that don't. I think everybody can have it, but people don't go for it. I think it's also partly a muscle, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or I guess, like you're saying, like keeping yourself open to the idea. Yeah, and it is sort of like a muscle that you have to kind of exercise because you can get better or worse at it. You have to practice it a little bit. like Just like meditation. You have to sort of practice it and you, get, you find you do get better at it. You know, you just don't sit there for the first time you sit and then for an hour you're absolutely just on the breath the whole time your mind is gone in five seconds and yeah. you're like gone to the Hudson River for ten minutes and you come back oh, oh wait yeah, I'm, I'm back here I'm supposed to be here and, and then you know you find after five or ten years of that then you're kind of like oh okay I, I just managed to put together a whole minute of, with my breath you know yeah, what I mean yeah. and whatever insights come with that I mean insights come and that's the magic part of it because the insights are coming because the mind did kind of wander a little bit. But your mind, your thoughts get better and better. Yeah. Your mind becomes more, not just concentrated, but more purified. Yeah. And the same kind of thing happens, I think, with practicing in creativity, whatever that may be, whether you're writing or painting or doing playing guitar or whatever, writing songs, that the more you do it, 
the more that muscle, that channel, whatever you want to call it, the channel's more open, the muscle's more fluid and limber and strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, t- I can totally relate to that. Yeah. But when, you let, when you're sort of, I guess, in this state of flow and you're trying to write a song, do you give any thought to song structure in general? Do you think like, oh, now I need to go to the chorus, I need to write a chorus now? I'll look at a song sometimes and say, do I want a chorus? There's some songs like um, Love is Best of All doesn't have a chorus. It's basically that song is structured like a haiku almost. Every verse has the exact, every line, every verse that copies the, um, I forget if it's 575, I don't remember exactly what it is, it doesn't matter, but but they're identical. Right. Syllable structures. And that was purposeful because I wanted to sort of go somewhere between haiku and Sappho. Okay. On that, I read some line from a Sappho poem and it sparked it. It sparked that whole thing. And then I, I don't know why, why I wanted to kind of put it in a haiku format. And then the music came with it. And it started out as a result of a plane crash over the Grand Canyon and oh, the loss okay. of some lives. I was living in Flagstaff and I. It was like, there's a constellation of things happening. You happen to be reading Sappho at that particular moment in your life, or you're interested in haiku, and then there's a plane crash, and you're also in a relationship with somebody where you're realizing that forgiveness and love is the most important part of that relationship, and how do we, you know, how do you keep practicing that? So then you have this constellation of things that are all happening in your life, and then this song is birthed out of yeah. it, you know what I mean? Like, boop, here we go, throw that out into the world. <laughs> right, it's like the fuel for the inspiration that comes after. Yeah, there's always a constellation. It's never in a vacuum of influences, you know. So, yeah, so that's that's really cool. I mean, it's great to, I, I feel blessed to have an enthusiasm for expression. Yeah, 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 wanting to put that stuff out there. Yeah, to be expressive. Yeah. And, you know, so much of um, capitalist commercial media and well it's capitalism maybe marx would would speak to this very plainly that we're alienated from that you know there's the specializations that occur and professionalizations that occur under capitalism and so there are people who for whatever reason are designated as the songwriters and they're the specialists and they're the professionals and then there are other people who are designated as the whatever you know mm. artist of some sort whatever you want to call it and then there's all these other people who are designated to be consumers and somehow are made to believe from the very beginning that unless they can, quote, make it, they have no business doing it. They have no business being creative. And every time they try to be creative, people embarrass them or, you know, or put the kibosh on them unintentionally but and unconsciously by saying, oh, you know, are you going to make it? Well, actually, I'm making it. I am making a poem right now. It doesn't <laughs> matter whether I become Mary Oliver. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I am making it. And, and that's it, a human activity that's ripped off, you know? It's yeah. sad. Yeah, and I think with, you know, like the emergence of sort of the internet age, those barriers have been kind of struck down in a lot of ways. If you want to make something, there are so many outlets for you to just do what you love on the internet, regardless of whether you want to make money off of it or right. in, in, in any way. I you agree. Know, whether yeah. it's artistry, uh, uh, you know, visual arts, music, painting, There's just every single subculture is represented online. Right, right. Well, you can distribute it and you can do it. And that's a very interesting environment, whether it's desktop publishing, desktop music, or whatever the case may be. I mean, if you can afford to buy a few toys, and, you know, some people have made movies, like this movie Tangerine or whatever that was just out recently. They made a whole movie on an iPhone. (laughs) You know, I mean, so so it doesn't have to be the most high-tech equipment in the world. But there's always this element of making it, though, that's there. Like, is my funky iPhone movie going to get a million hits? You know, there's that that capitalist infiltration into 
to the mind and the you know the economic mind, you know. And some things are kind of lost in that way. Even though there's more opportunity, there's also a din that makes it harder for anybody to be heard above the din. Right. And then, of course, you have to look and see, well, what's that person's agenda? Is their agenda to be heard above the din or is their agenda to get in touch with their unique expressive self? And if that is true, then why does it need to be on the internet at all? You know, why does it need so much technology and plastic and earth-destructive gear to be expressive? Mm -hmm. And so we're in a sort of a catch-22 in yeah. that way. You know, I'm, I'm in it, you're in it, we're all in it. I was at the Jackson Brown concert the other night. Oh, was, I went, yeah, I went did as you well. Yeah. yeah, and he was singing this song, and I thought, you know, how ironic, you know, he's singing this song about all the plastic in the ocean and everything, and yet he's one of the greatest consumers of plastic. <laughs> I mean, all every guitar cable on that stage that's came out of a hyper-plastic package. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, it's funny because that's exactly what my wife said after that concert. Like those exact things. She's very worried about the plastic island in the in the ocean, and rightfully so. But she echoed your sentiments exactly. Right. So how true. do we tear? How does that all come apart? How does that all come apart? You know, we we may end up, end up entering some kind of a dark age where there'll be sort of urban monastic enclaves. <laughs> you know, people who just have a still have their triple O fifteen nineteen fifty five Martin and treasure it and they live in a trailer and they actually share music with each other like kind of like the early seventies before you know what I mean like, <laughs> like we go Jerome. back we go to a dark age, you know, like this nice little hiding place, you know. <laughs> I think it's kinda of cool. There's actually a good book uh, written in the early 2000s by Morris Berman okay. and it's, it's something about, I forget the exact title The Twilight Age or something and it talks about urban monasticism in the coming dark ages and it's very interesting I mean because the whole internet technology for example is so fragile I mean solar flares could take this thing down never mind you know red Chinese uh, <laughs> I know I'm dating myself by saying red Chinese but <laughs> communist Chinese you know hackers or whatever or American hackers you know what I mean it's very fragile but it's like Ptolemy's library you know it can fall apart and, and we're putting more and more of everything into it but but, you know, that, who knows how it's going to happen? I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little out there right now. But I don't know. There's a part of me that just feels like I could be really happy with just one guitar and a trailer. And, you know, there's a simplicity and a beauty to that. And forget, you know, forget about having a million people hear my songs. And, and that's why I guess, you know, really, I haven't put out a CD in about 10 years now. And uh, I have two CDs written. But I just haven't had the, you know, to go in and actually make a big plastic deal out of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah. But but it'll happen. I mean, it'll just be like a little lo-fi, low-number production, you know, an unambitious production and hopefully be artistically beautiful. That's all that matters. Cool. Let's talk about one of these records. I kind of, I really liked the Sacred Spud album. I listened to both of them. And obviously, I thought this one was cool because of the bluesy kind of amalgamation of blues and kind of folk. Honky country tonk or yeah something. yeah 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 so i'm just wondering so how those songs came to be was that did you bring the songs to a band and then you jammed them out or did they come together as part of a band or how how was the production process of well i wrote the songs on my own because i've been mostly a solo artist for you know these many decades that i've been messing around with this with on and off bands but during that time around the mid 2000s i was working with a quartet myself lisa ote ed delucha the guitar player oh yeah i know him. and hal rugg who passed away this in fact sacred spud was his last recordings ed actually gave us uh, him and eric when they were they play at modern record every once in a while he gave us a, a nice little 
break we played in in between their sets so. oh that's great yeah uh, he's so such he's a great guy guitar. and he's an amazing guitar player oh, yeah. and he's uh the guitarist on both of these cds anyway we we had this quartet and ed really loved the stuff that i was writing at that time and he said we gotta we have to record this we have to record this and so he really pushed it because otherwise i'd just space out and go i don't know forget <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. and he had bought he had like an eight track boss door in his living room. And so we actually started the album in his living room. The four of us crammed into his living room. I still remember the Christmas tree in there, the image. It was so it must have been just before Christmas. We laid down uh, Good Old Fashioned Un-Americana, Shake the Demon. All the tracks that have Hal Rugg on it, we laid down in Ed's living room. And some of them, the scratch vocals, even though I had a bad cold, the, the emotion of just being with those musicians that I loved so much and being in their presence. I, I always end up doing better scratch vocals than the vocals later. You know, yeah. it, just, it just goes that way for me. I'm more of a performing artist than a recording artist. And I think that's why the vocals are so stiff on the Jim Brady, the earlier CD. I don't care for the vocals on that CD. I like the songwriting, I like the arrangements and the musicianship, but my singing, I think, is really rigid. And it, 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 that was such a dead studio. It was a 70s dead studio. Nothing bad about Jim. He's a great engineer. Oh, yeah. But I just couldn't perform in there. Right. It's such a different shift, you know, from just because when you're playing live, whether it's being recorded or not, you just sort of have to be loose. You have to, you're, you've succumbed yourself to the fact there's people watching you. You have to perform. And you have to perform. And you have to become the character yeah. in the song. Yeah. You have to do it. Yeah. And I love doing that. That's where I really, that's probably my strength more than anything. I'm probably a much better performer than even a musician. And so being in the studio is hard for me. So the second album I did at Duncan Stitt's writer's studio, and it was just a much more relaxed place. There was just a little bit more reverb in the room itself. The musicians just played together, you know, we weren't talking about baffles and this and that and all the kind of high tech stuff. And it just worked a lot better for me. And uh, I, I, don't, I think I answered the wrong question there. <laughs> but yeah, so. But, no, but and so how did the songs, let me take a look at the song yeah. list. And so we were doing this, we were playing a lot at, at Janos when it was up in the foothills. That was like our, the place where we were, our little quartet really played the most. And Ed was just like, we got to do it, we got to do it. So we did Looking for a Savior in his living room. I think Don't Make a Scene started there, Shake the Demon, Good Old Fashioned. Although, like I said, the ones, the ones with Hal. Then Hal got too sick to record anymore. And then we decided to take the whole project into Duncan's. And I had Ed on guitar and Ralphie Gilmore on the drums, Sabra Falk on bass. She plays the bass throughout. This. She's a great bass player. And she did, I don't think she did harmonies. I brought my friend Kathy Bailey in from LA to do harmonies with me. And she was so much fun. She brought in the idea to do all the Gladys Knight and the Pips kind of background music on um, Brother, Can You Spare Ten Bucks? Okay. It's like the pimps in the background there. Shoop, <laughs> shoop, oop, you know. So that was her idea. It was a great, great arrangement. And then all the great, like, layered vocals on Thankful Way to Be. It's a gospel song at the end. Yeah. That was me and Kathy just layering all that we sent come out like a gospel choir on that and it's just, it just did over and over and, and over mr boogie again. woogie from amsterdam plays the piano on that he's so amazing on that so we did that all in duncan's place it was so much fun my hometown was already written all these the only song on here that i didn't write is the story of isaac by leonard cohen right and i just love leonard cohen and i oh, always yeah. love that song it's an anti-war song yeah. leonard cohen is definitely one of my favorites absolutely yeah. absolutely so um what was the question <laughs> well it was just wondering about the writing process behind uh or writing slash production process on of the CD because it has a very cool sound to it. So thank you. Yeah, we were performing most of these songs as the, part of the quartet. It was part of that repertoire for that quartet, and Ed liked them a lot. Hal was a little bit like when we recorded um, "Shake the Demon." That song is what like six minutes long or something. He started, you know, Hal was he started out with Patsy Cline. I mean, Hal Rugg 
was the king of pedal steel in Nashville. He grew up in Tucson. His father was a professor who was blacklisted in the McCarthy era, and that's why I dedicated good old-fashioned Un-Americana to his father. If you listen to the words, you'll understand why. Oh, okay. And, um, uh, well, it's Un-Americana, you know, the Un-American thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Hal went off to Nashville as a very young man and started playing with all the greats, and he became like a Hall of Fame pedal steel player. And then... Later on in life, his wife died and he kind of got a little older and he decided to retire. But he played with everybody. I mean, you know, when I first met him, I was just like dying that he was playing with me. You know, it was amazing. And he was such a gentleman, you know, and he treated me like I was Loretta Lynn. He played with her for years, you know, but he like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I mean, he was like, I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I was like bowing to him all the time. I took him into Jim Brady's studio because he plays a couple of things on Love is Best of All. And, and I was telling Jim about him. Jim's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jim has Linda Ronstadt in his studio all the time, Dolly Parton, Emmy Lou and everybody. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Kathleen. You know, he's, <laughs> I'm hyperbolic. He's not paying any attention to me. I said, no, really, you're going to drop dead when you hear this guy. So anyway, Hal comes in there and he had he he already made his own chart, of course, you know, on the Nashville system yeah, yeah, yeah. for the song um, The Stars Draw Near on the first CD there. Anyway, he rips right into it and Jim is in there and he goes, can I curse on this podcast thing? Yeah. He goes, holy fuck. He's like, he's like, as I told you, he's like, his jaw just dropped down to the board, you know. He couldn't believe it. Hal did the, did the whole thing in two takes. The first take, he said, I don't like that one. He did the second take, he was done, you know. And uh, it was just amazing, just amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I think I answered the wrong question again, but <laughs> no, no, I love the stories. They're like <laughs> great. He was such a great guy. It was so sad. When we found out he had lung cancer. We were in the middle of recording this, and we found out he had lung cancer, and he got really sick really fast. Yeah, he was depressed about it too because you know he was a former smoker. You know, so yeah. it's like that's hard. Right. But he came back to Tucson. He retired here after his wife died, and then he he hooked up with his like former high school sweetheart and they were living up in the foothills together and having a nice life. It was so wonderful that he was here for that time. That's great. He's like the highlight of both of these CDs. I think people say they'll listen to it. And the first thing they'll say is like, wow, who's your pedal steel player? Uh, well, so uh, yeah, if you're listening, go uh, listen to Sacred Spud and take particular note about that. <laughs> yeah. So let me backtrack up a little bit because I wanted to ask you, so you have on the record, even though you know it's bluesy, it's sort of country folk-ish, but your lyrics and your and your lyrical content has a very conversational tone to it. Is that just how you've always written, or was that sort of how you were trying to to convey the songs? I think I've always, more often than not, written sort of above the, and it's not a, it's not good as a songwriter to do this above the average intelligence level. <laughs> but it's not a good idea. People don't like it. And it's still I still can't help but do it. You right. know, I mean, it's not well, maybe I'm slightly above average. A lot of people I mean, there's an average and then there's a lot of lot a lot of people who are above average. Obviously. But you know, with this album, what I really wanted to try to do was write sort of more popular blues countryish sounds and pop sounds like is it a sin is a very pop sound it's almost beatleish and there's another one here that's very beatleish which one is it keep it faithful that one's very beatleish and yet and that's the words are very simple to that but still to be poetic you know to sort of use metaphor and poetic and not use cliches as much you know to really try hard yeah to not use cheap tricks and empty calorie words and even when i'm writing prose I really try to look at like what words are just empty calories? How can I cut that stuff out, you know? And and so there's a level of, you know, I think intelligent poetics in some of these. Now the song My Hometown, for example, that song is not just about a personal relationship or 
something. It's actually saying something political. Oh, I took a note of that when I was listening to it. So, like, it's very obvious what company you are referring to. Oh, yeah. The- well, yeah. <laughs> I'm referring to Davis Monthan Air Force Base, and I'm referring to Raytheon, yeah. and, you know, the, and I'm referring to the Titan Missile Project, which yeah. we're also known for. Yeah. I mean, Tucson's a military town. Yeah. A huge part of our economy is the military. Right. And so the opening line in my hometown is, the bombs that killed your sister's child are built in my hometown. Right. And I'm speaking to the faces that I'm seeing on television in the first Iraq war. Right. I think it's a very powerful song. And, I'm, you know, like you, a lot of people in Tucson were living under the davis Monthan flight path. Yeah. So I had A-10s flying over my house all day long. Now I have F-16s flying over my house and Blackhawks that are going in and out over the A-Mountain area. I mean, that's abominable. And, you know, most of our budget is going to military. That's what's, And the United States military is the largest consumer of fossil fuel in the world. So guess who's the largest contributor to global warming? You know, you can put your solar panels on your roof till the cows come home, and you can put your water tanks out there and catch rainwater. We can do all these things, and yet it's the United States military that's really more than anybody destroying the planet with their war games. You know, dropping bombs in the Pacific Ocean as a sort of a war game. I mean, it's insane. It is. It's like, it, it, it's my cause, you know, I mean, yeah. my ultimate cause, more than human rights, more than gay rights, more than any of this other stuff is like the U.S. military is the problem. It's the problem with our budget. It's the problem with this country. They are running this country. It's a, it's a military dictatorship. Don't let anybody fool you. That's why you're not hearing any of these candidates really address the military. <laughs> right. They're not talking about it. You know, they're talking about everything but. Yeah. They can't do anything about the military. In a country that's in perpetual, when a country's at war, the military is in control of that country. And that's why we've been in perpetual war since World War II. So that's the, my hometown is very powerful that way. Brother, Can You Spare Ten Bucks is about homelessness. And it, I really, in that song, I feel like I really got inside the mind of a homeless person. And that's what I try to do. And a lot of these songs where I'm singing in the first person, I like this. This is a little joke that I say. I used to say live a lot. I don't have single personality disorder. <laughs> single personality disorder is the real problem. <laughs> and so anyway, I have a lot of, I'm able to tap into a lot of acting, like I'm able to empathize and tap into a lot of people's experiences. Yeah. And fortunately, my life's been very diverse and I'm old. And so I have experienced a lot. And I mean old in a good way. Right. People use the word, they say old. Oh no, you're not old. No, I mean old in a really positive, valuable, wonderful, rich way. Yeah. Like a wealth of experience. veteran, you know, yeah. like, a, yeah, like, you know, and thank God I have my health, you know, knock on wood. But, but anyway, <laughs> um, so I can tap into these experiences, you know, I can tap into them and then, and then expand upon them a little bit and, and imagine like truly being homeless or, you know, a lot of these things that are happening in these songs. So tell me, that kind of brings me to my next question. Has there ever been a time where you didn't have anything to write about and had a bout of writer's block in any way? And how did you overcome it, if so? Well, there are those times, and I don't try to overcome them. I just kind of rest in that space, and I just find something else to do. And the minute I just relax behind it and I just go out and start planting carrot seeds again and relaxing, the next thing it just sort of comes. I cannot force the muse to come. I just can grab the opportunity and practice that when it's ripe, when it's happening. There, there are purposefully times where, just like on a 24-hour cycle, there's a circadian rhythm, and there's times when you just go to sleep. You know, there's times when you eat, there's times when you rest, there's times when you sow, there's times when you harvest. <laughs> yeah. And I think the same thing is true in, with creativity. 
Yeah. There's times where you just, you know, to think that you're going to get up. Like I read an, uh, an interview by about Nick Cave, or it was him giving an interview rather, Nick Cave. And he said that he gets up at, and he, he spends eight hours a day, just like a businessman sitting there writing songs. And right. I thought, God, I could never do it that way. You know, God bless anybody that can do it that way, but I can't, I can't, I can't regiment it like that. I had a, a guest on the show. He's a friend of mine. His name is Joe Gilder. He's in the first episode of the podcast. And he wrote 50 songs in 12 weeks as a challenge to right. himself. Right. And his main thing was he started off by doing it, you know, an hour a day. Right, right, right. And like always the first hour of the day because, and I can totally relate to this is, you know, the first hours of your day after you've, you know, woken out of your slumber, like completely, you are the most, I guess, creative in a way, or mm -hmm. at least open to, you know, your brain is, is the most rested mm -hmm. because your body is rested when you wake up, hopefully, if you've had a good night's sleep, but your brain is tired at the end of the day, mm -hmm. even though your body might still have like a few mm -hmm. extra hours in it because now you're going to go make dinner and go out or watch TV or, you know, kind of shut your mind off for a while because it's, it gets really tiring to work your brain for eight hours a day. That's why, you know, the early mornings are, and that's, you know, not, uh, not applicable to everybody, but, no, but uh, I, I could see where that is true because the mind you're in a somnolent state sometimes too. Like I have, I've had great ideas in sort of some somnolent states, like dream states, you know, like or was half awake states. And I was going all of a sudden, like some fabulous creative thing will just come in, you know, that open state. And, you know, I've often, I've heard about people doing that. And, and then there's this other thing every November where you write 50,000 words, you write yeah. a book and you, know, you yeah, just yeah, push yeah, yeah. it. And if I have the time at some point, I'll try that. I mean, yeah. I think I probably, I don't think I would have much trouble writing a song a day. Like Texas Hold'em, I could write. I could write one of those every day if I yeah. wanted to. But then there's other more meaningful things that come in that you know you don't know when that's going to happen. It could be when you're purposefully sitting down and saying, "I'm going to write 50 songs in 50 right. days." Or yeah, and his was you know, and and I, I could uh, relate to this because it was the most important thing. Do it first thing in the morning, right. and then you know set your set an hour to do it or whatever. But don't mm -hmm. let it consume your day. And you know he 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 managed to do it in. In 12 weeks, he didn't write a song a day. He, you know, took right. breaks and then he scrambled to finish at the very end. But, you know, it, it was an interesting The other thing uh, that's interesting, interesting about that is that if I find that if I have been playing music the, the night before or I've gone to a concert the night before, things happen in my sleeping state. And when I wake up the next morning, I wake up with a lot of song ideas and music ideas. Yeah. So it, it, it carries over. It seems like you just kind of take the energy mm -hmm. away from it and, and it's kind of... Just kind of boils in your brain for right. a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's just sort of the more you do it, the better, you know. And the brain starts just that avenue is just sort of always available and easy to traverse, you know. And All right, well, we've almost to the hour mark here, so I have a couple of more questions. Uh, I thought I'd ask you if uh, we talked about the, uh, this book before. You recommended a book before, but I was wondering if you had any other book recommendations to whether that's those they're music related or just you know related in any way to get inspired to be creative. Well, you know, I like reading Mary Oliver's poetry. I mentioned her a couple of minutes ago or other poets. Rabindranath Tagore is one of my favorite poets and writers and so like sometimes when I'm reading those things I get really great just images or words, you know, or lines, sometimes a line or something, you know, or it's inspiring and and um I really like reading um Tolstoy his short stories like Walk in the Light When You Can and things like that. There's just beautiful writing in there. And uh, so that stuff sort of will start triggering me, you know, with some of the Irish writers, Yeats and those writers. And So as far as writers go, I, I 
once in a while, I have read books over the years, like, you know, how to write a song or how to write lyrics and things like that. But I just don't remember most of what I read in those. <laughs> to tell you the truth, you know, yeah. I really have a resistance to formulaic, even though, like, there's formula in these songs. You know, I still have a resistance to it. And I have a new song called Angels Are um, Impatient With Me. I can't wait to actually put that one out. And right. uh, it's so, it's just, it's formulaic, but it's not formulaic. It's really kind of challenging. And, you know, it's doesn't, it, does, it breaks all the rules. And yeah. I don't know. I just sort of like that. Cool. <laughs> you know, like sometimes I've been to these, I've gone to some songwriting conventions over the years, you know, the folk music conferences and things like that. And you'll hear people more, too often actually, you'll hear these experts on songwriting and they'll say you know you want to learn how to write a song well just turn on that radio and listen to that radio and listen to that radio you want to find out what's selling there's your formula you know follow those formulas and everything that's great if you're only interested in selling crap and <laughs> derivative really writing derivative stuff and you know being a technician instead of an artist you know yeah. that's that's the instructions for that kind of life but uh, you know I don't, I don't want to be a songwriter to do that I want to have original, you know, better ideas. And we have, we're already limited in so many ways, just in Western music as it is. So right. opening yourself up to other ethnic musics is really helpful too, to, to broaden that vocabulary and ideas and structures. Yeah, to kind of get an alternative view that you can possibly, and it, it might not even make the song that you will then write any similar to right. any of the ethnic music, but it might have triggered something in you. Right. And another thing that's cool to do is sometimes is just pick up an instrument you don't play at all. Yeah. You know, I don't really know how to play piano very much, but I have a piano and I'll, right. you know, mess around with it because my hands go into default on the guitar a lot of the time, you know? Yeah, you know, G, C, D, mm -hmm. all that. Yeah, yeah. The, the chords and the, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? So you pick <laughs> up something completely alien and get a melody out of it or, I don't know, something, some co weird chord that you just made up and then you're like, let's say, well, where, where, where does this go? Where does this chord, what is this chord? What is this thing? Or take your guitar and just completely detune it. Yeah. Make, just don't even follow, don't even know what you're tuned. Just like, that sounds good, that sounds good. Let's put this together and then figure out what you tune it to later or something you know what i mean like and just find stuff yeah just finds like the world of sound when i'm actually the first guitar before i learned how to play guitar i had a guitar and i used to sort of i, I don't even know if it was tuned right or anything but i would find shapes on it that sounded good and then just like listen to it over and over and feel the vibration of it and just like just just be with that alone that was satisfying in itself just that well kathleen we have you've actually managed to answer almost all of my questions without me actually asking them, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome, which okay. is great. It's been very enjoyable talking to you. You have a great story. For all story. the podcasters out there, it's been wonderful to be here looking <laughs> yeah. at your beautiful smile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So I wanted to end the podcast by playing one of your songs off of one of your records and uh, and and I wanted to just kind of have you choose which one yeah. and then maybe you want to introduce it you've talked about a lot of them in the podcast but or during the episode but I'm wondering if you wanted to pick one to play and then maybe introduce it as you were introducing it live for instance well geez that's hard to pick one I'll tell you because <laughs> I really I, I really like my songs <laughs> but well since we talked about the blues and how popular the blues are let's just go with mean mean road Actually, the way this song was born, I was in Ireland. Uh -huh. I was with my Aunt Bridie on these funny little, what the Irish people call boreens. A bahar is a road. And a boreen, anything that ends with een is a little thing. Like Mora is Mary, Maureen is little Mary. Yeah, yeah. Okay? okay? Anyway, so we were on this little, one would call a boreen there, and she was, and it's very twisty and turny. And she said, uh, she said, oh, this is a mean road. 
And from that, I was traveling with Lisa. She was with me on that trip. And and then Lisa and I were driving around in her own car, and we were just ha- having fun with what Bridie said about that being a mean road, you know. And then so from that, we started to write this song together in the car. You know, it's a mean, mean road. It's a classic blues. <laughs> you know, there's nothing original about the music to it, but I just think it's fun. It's got some fun guitar parts with Ed DeLucia. And so I'm just going down the list. I just picked the first one. All right. Really, awesome. so awesome. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. So, well, before we do that, where can people find you? They can find me at KathleenWilliamson.com, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S-O-N.com. And whatever's going on will be there. The only place actually right now, because I am so lazy, where there's a physical outlet for my CDs is in Jerome, Arizona, in a pottery shop called Made in Jerome. (laughs) But if you want a CD, just write to me at KathleenWilliamson.com and I'll get it to you one way or the other, and or you can find it on iTunes and all those other places where I don't make any money. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. All right. Thank you. All right. Here here we have uh, Mean Mean Road. Oh, it's a mean, mean road. You gotta drive it all by yourself It's a mean road You better drive it all by yourself Ain't nobody gonna drive it for you You got to drive it by yourself Mm, It's an old stone house you gotta live there all by yourself An old stone house You gotta live there all by yourself Ain't nobody gonna live there with you You got to live there by It's a lonely song You're gonna sing it all alone Ain't nobody gonna sing it with you You got to sing it by yourself Thank you. 
it's a cold, cold bed. You're gonna lie in it all by yourself. It's a cold bed, cold as charity. Ain't nobody gonna lie in it with you. You got to lie there by yourself.